On this episode of Africa's Big Switch, the ABS team sat down together with Bradley K. Poku Amankwa, who is an acting principal coordinator at the Ghana Energy Transition Office. This is a collaboration between the United Nations Sustainable Energy for All and the government of Ghana based at the office of the president in Accra. He has previously served as a senior technical assistant to Ghana's Minister for Energy and was secretary to the country's National Energy Transition Committee. He's also Ghana's youngest board member of State Enterprise and founder of Play It Forward Africa, a social enterprise using sports as a vehicle for impact in the health sector. We hope you enjoy this. Hi and welcome to another episode of ABS. Today, Asana and I will be speaking to Bradley Poku Amankwa, and we'll be looking at the energy transition in Ghana. Hi, Bradley. Welcome to the show. How are you feeling today? Hi, Bolaji. I'm great. Thanks. Um, I'm grateful for you guys having me on the show. I'm super excited to share my views. Hope you guys are good too. Yeah, yeah. We're super excited to have you, man. And um, I guess just as a as a starter, can you give us uh, like a few a few lines about yourself and and tell us how you go into the energy industry? Absolutely. So my name is Bradley Kwekupukwamankwa. I'm Ghanaian. Um, I studied here in Accra first for my the beginning of my education, but then in the UK for my undergrad and postgrad degrees at St Andrews in Scotland and the London School of Economics. Um, I then came back to start my own um, biofuel startup called Smart Fuel. What we're trying to do at the time was to collect waste cooking oils from canteens, from restaurants, from whoever would give it to us, really, and convert it into biofuel for people to put um, in their diesel generators as a cheaper alternative. Because at the time, we were having a power crisis and people were relying on um, quite expensive fuel to run their homes, etc., um, so that was kind of how I got my feet wet in the industry. And then I then went on to work with a company called Petronia City, uh, which was aiming to build like a whole energy city in the Western region of Ghana um, on sustainable options, but also, you know, of course, fossil fuel too. Um, and then this was before I went back to the UK to do my master's and came back and worked in the Ministry of Energy as a senior technical assistant to the minister um, which I did for the past two years up until very recently. So yeah, that's pretty much in a nutshell my journey in the energy industry. <laughs> amazing, amazing. It seems like you've walked across um, a few fields from an entrepreneur starting the business and with that kind of ambition coming back from the UK um, all the way to the to the policy space, um, advising um, some key decision makers. So that sounds that sounds really interesting. Um, I guess following on from that, why would you say you're you're passionate about the energy industry or about what you do specifically? Um, for me, energy access is one of those solutions that kind of has an effect on so many other aspects of our lives, right? From healthcare to education, commerce, agriculture, you name it. It's, it's one of the pillars of any functioning society, really. And I feel like, it's a great measure of any country's development stage as a result. 
So simply put, having solid energy access across the continent will determine a large, to a large extent, our, our outcomes as well, our developmental outcomes. That's why I am quite um, passionate on solving some of the challenges in the sector. Thank you for sharing. That's insightful. So now I guess it's time to go um, deep in the question. So according to the World Bank data from around 2020, energy access in Ghana is about 85%, which I would say is quite impressive for an African country. But then mm-hmm. what would you say are some of the reasons why there isn't clean and affordable and sustainable energy for everyone? Um, I love the question. love how it was framed, especially because I now work for Sustainable Energy for All, which I actually forgot to mention in my um, introduction. But um, yeah, I'll even touch on that a little bit. So I've now joined SE for All or Sustainable Energy for All, which is a UN um, agency to work as a principal specialist in energy. So I'm, I'm leading the Energy Transition Office here in Ghana. We're based out of the Office of the President. And so, yes, Sustainable Energy for All is our not just our name, but our ethos. But anyway, back to your question. Um, so that figure is slightly outdated. You're mentioning stats from 2020. As of now, we're hovering somewhere slightly above 87.7%, which is, like you said, quite remarkable, especially in the context of the sub-region and our continent at large. If you look around us, you would see figures that are slightly lower than that. Um, why isn't there clean, affordable and sustainable energy for all? There are financing gaps, I would say, which are one of the limiting issues. So that limits the pace of energy access, the, the, the affordability of infrastructure in, in, energy, in the energy space, right? So a lot of international funders are quite unfamiliar with the financial models that we have on ground. Um, and they therefore end up sometimes overemphasizing the risk profile, which makes the projects kind of investable in, in their opinions. So there's a, there's typically a lot of like interest, initial interest, do do some due diligence, and then they kind of like pull out. So that doesn't cause like that doesn't cause for favorable environment for investment, of course. And there's so many other factors as well, even things as interesting as topography. You know, we have a lot of like interesting topographies in in this part of the world. So a lot of mountainous regions, a lot of lakes, rivers, etc. That all make it very difficult to extend grid access. So those are some of the challenges that we face in that. Thank you for answering. So aside from like the jollof rice war that goes on between <laughs> and Ghana. Um, there's another thing that um we hear a lot, which is at least we have like and yeah. the banter that goes on between Nigerians and Ghanaians. And that is and that is because we're being told that Ghana has 24 hours uninterrupted power supply. How true is this? I mean, nowhere in the world has, correct me if I'm wrong, 24 hours uninterrupted power supply. It's 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 a manner of saying, pretty much. Even in the UK, there are blackouts. In the US, there are blackouts from time to time. Things happen and cause power outages all the time everywhere. So in, in exclusive terms, that's not true. But for the most part, you understand the sentiment behind those kind of um, sayings. What they are trying to say is that when we do have power outages in Ghana from time to time, it's usually due to scheduled maintenance works on grid infrastructure in particular areas. You get So like it's not... I, I'm guessing what they're trying to say is that in Nigeria, there might be 
um, generation issues. They don't have enough supply, etc. But that's not what we have in Ghana. So it's typically scheduled maintenance works on 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 grid infrastructure on a pylon or a, a substation in a particular area, and it will be announced ahead of time so people in that area can also plan and prepare for it, at least in 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 recent times. But of course, I would rather not dwell on the past because that that hasn't always been the case. But in any case. Banter aside, I also don't find those comparisons quite helpful because it doesn't take a genius to realize that Nigeria is also a far larger landmass than Ghana is, and it therefore requires a whole lot more grid infrastructure too. I like that that ending part. Kind of gave us a, a good comeback there for Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I let's, think stick just the, the, let's stick to the Jollof Wars. <laughs> <laughs> let's just stick to the Jollof Wars, okay. Exactly. We can do that. Um, and I think following on from that, can you give us a brief overview of what the energy mix is in Ghana in terms of like energy generation? And um, I guess like adding on to that, so I, you know, Nigeria is an oil producing country where I'm from. And I realized that during my research that Ghana also discovered oil in commercial quantities, which isn't as loud as maybe Nigeria exporting oil. Um so two questions. One is, can you give us an overview of what the energy mix is in Ghana in terms of energy generation? And then secondly is, how important has this discovery of oil, or let me say oil and gas in Ghana, um, contributed to this energy mix? So, I mean, yeah, I'll start from the back by saying the end of your question, which is that how important has the oil discovery been for Ghana? Incredibly so. So Ghana was primarily powered by hydroelectricity from the Akosombo Dam, which was developed in the 1960s. Um, so we were a true we are a true pioneer of renewable energy. But of course, our population has grown so much since then, along with several industrial pressures. And so accordingly, our energy demand has also grown. So having additional energy sources has been vital. So that while we seek to eventually decarbonize, at the moment, many of our power plants are actually powered by gas, um, which is seen as a transition fuel, of course. And these contribute to our baseload upon which we seek to add further renewable options with time, including things like nuclear, which the president has declared that we will be doing pretty soon as well. Interesting. Yeah, gas gas is a major um, power supplier as well in Nigeria. Taking us a little bit back, I know when we spoke about, um, when Asana asked the question about um, some of the the reasons why we, there isn't 100% energy access in Ghana is because of a couple of reasons, including finance and options and, and topography. Um, can you please like elaborate on maybe some of the other challenges that you've seen? And I guess a follow-on from that, so that's in terms of energy access, a follow-on from that would be um, beyond energy access as to say, okay, not everyone in, in Ghana has you know access to electricity. What are some of the other um, challenges that you've encountered um, within the energy industry in Ghana? Okay, so that's a big bite of a question. Let me pick the part (laughs) that I can handle for now, um, which is basically saying that beyond energy access, what are some of the other challenges in the sector? I would say at the moment, a key challenge that Ghana and other smaller oil producing countries are facing is the threat of stranded assets. As the world rapidly is seeking to decarbonize so it's it's literally a race to net zero, as we call it. And countries with untapped fossil fuels, fossil fuel reserves would, of course, like to exploit them while there's still time in order to fund some of the green infrastructure projects that the world 
is demanding, right? So that's causing a lot of issues for us because we would love like Germany and the rest of the UK, uh, the rest of Europe to also make very ambitious um, decarbonization plans. Some of them are saying as early as 2030. <laughs> we'll see whether that will happen. But we do realize that energy access is also key for us. And there are people that still haven't gotten energy in our countries. So while we do have an energy transition plan in, 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 on paper, we also still not, we we're making sure that it's a just energy transition for us. And by just, we mean one that is inclusive and one that is acknowledging of our individual circumstances. I'm following on, on to that, actually. So what would you say to people who say that African countries should not even be concerned about energy transition and climate change, but that instead they should focus on just energy access? in, let's say, the context of economic development? I completely understand them um, because access is definitely the priority, right? Um, You have to have energy to be able to transition in the first place. But the two should not be seen as mutually exclusive. A lot of people like to kind of categorize them as either one or the other. But many developing countries still have the opportunity to be born green, as I call them, or build infrastructure that is sustainable from the onset as we seek to close the last mile of our energy access gap. So basically, whereas other countries have already, um, you know, for the most part, they've, they've developed their grid infrastructure, it's done. They now have to convert that or um, start from scratch, which is more expensive. A lot of our countries in this part of the world have not even yet completed um, the grid infrastructure that's required to cover their countries. So as we are in that last mile, it's key that we also factor in some of these more sustainable forms of energy infrastructure into our planning. And earlier you did mention something about um, some people saying um, Ghana to achieve 100% energy by 2030. So would you say um, um, Ghana is actually on track to achieve 100% energy access by 2030? And especially like in line with SDG 7, and why would you say so? Like, why would you say yes or why would you say no? So 100% is a, is a tricky figure, and I'll come to that. But uh, yes, in, in a nutshell, yes. His Excellency, the President's vision is for Ghana to reach universal access by 2024, which is next year, actually. Um, but universal access is actually pegged at 90%, not 100 So it's the preferred measure because in reality, it's pretty much difficult to maintain 100% because population is constantly growing. So that perfect access figure is almost impossible, right? And Ghana is pretty much there. As I said earlier, we're about 87.7% at the moment, as I last checked, um, with the exception of a few small island settlements along the Volta River. So that goes back to the issue of topography. Um, Those are, of course, harder to add to the grid because you have to... it's, It's way more expensive. It's way more technically complex, etc. So under the leadership of the current energy minister, Dr. Prempe, my immediate past boss, um, that has been really prioritized. I remember going with him to visit one of these islands where we have an off-grid solution there and it was fantastic to, to watch. And so I won't be surprised if we see access figures closer to 100% by 2030. I like the positive energy. We need that, we <laughs> that everywhere. But... Um... So in, on that note, what are some of like the policies and strategies that um, Ghana is currently like implementing or aims to implement in order to achieve this um, energy transition goal? So honestly, when it comes to 
the policy area, there's honestly not much room that Ghana hasn't covered. We have extensive policies in, in, in the energy sector and beyond. Uh, I can speak on this firsthand, having worked under the Minister of Energy, the current Minister of Energy as, a, as his technical assistant, like I said, for the past two years. From the energy, renewable energy policy to the LPG for Development Plan, and most recently, the National Energy Transition Framework produced by Dr. Dr. Matthew Prempe, of which I was a part. I was a secretary of that committee. And what we did was, you know, we had, of course, our technical teams producing this document, but also we went, we traveled the length and breadth of Ghana, speaking to all manner of people in different um, sectors of society, from traditional leadership to students to transport unions, whoever, um, municipal authorities, everybody. We spoke to everybody in all the 16 regions of Ghana to get their views on energy transition. And not 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 as a lofty concept, but we broke it down, really. We spoke wherever we went. We spoke the local language with them. We broke the tenants down of what energy transition is, the threats that it's bringing to our current existence and what it will mean for them and what they thought could also be done from their perspective. And it was fantastic. Um, but yeah, these documents and several others have been drawn out. They've drawn out comprehensive steps for us to reach our net zero goals of the future. And we just need to work to continue implementing them to yield greater results. As in my current position as um, principal coordinator at SE4 Ghana, I'm happy to announce that we're also working on a further plan with the government of Ghana. So building off of this framework that we went and did, we are actually developing an investor-ready document that will kind of make, allow international donors to be able to fund some energy transition projects in Ghana. Brilliant. It seems like there's a lot of amazing things already happening. Um, And I think to, I know you said like, you, you mentioned like so many policy areas, and I think it would be good for you to give us maybe an example of one one approach or one policy or strategy that you think has been successful, um, maybe reaching towards the end of his life or you, or some of the things you think that, well, the way the way Ghana specifically approached a certain aspect of, of, of a challenge or using a specific technology has been um, basically outstanding. I mean, I don't know if I mentioned the gas master plan, which is, is also a policy in Ghana, but even if not, I think I can comfortably say that that, is fantastic. Um, before, way before Europe, in, tw- in only two years ago, announced that gas was being seen as a transition fuel. Ghana had already been focusing on gas as a cleaner fossil fuel option, and we we now have, I think, an aim to achieve fifty percent penetration of of LPG gas in the country by twenty thirty as well. So. And we are well, I think we're well on our way. We've also rolled out something called the cylinder recirculation model here in Ghana, whereby we will now be collecting all um, gas LPG cylinders into depots. So the, you won't own them as a, as a private consumer. You will not own your cylinder, as has been the case in the past. These are all things that have been done to, are being done to mitigate some of the, the damages or the dangers of private ownership of cylinders. So we've, we've had some time to look at um, HSC issues around the sector and seeing that this is probably what will encourage more people to participate in using LPG as a, as a clean cooking solution. If they are less afraid and if it's more safe, they are more likely to participate. So yeah, I would think that was successful. And I think, uh, so you mentioned um, the energy transition framework and you mentioned how you traveled across the length and breadth of, 
of Ghana as the country, speaking the local language and engaging with people. So stakeholder mm-hmm. engagement is is a really important part of policy making, understanding yes. the problem and connecting with those people. Um, what other pillars do you think are key drivers or what are key drivers do you think are important for rolling out or implementing implementing successful policies? Uh, I think clear communication matters as well. So as whilst we're on this stakeholder, although I would say the stakeholder engagement is probably the most important for me, um, no matter what government wishes to achieve, it's important that the people that are meant to benefit from it will be brought along the journey. And honestly, I'm not just saying this because he's my former boss, but the Minister of Energy did a fantastic job on that. Sometimes we were exhausted <laughs> with the amount of times that we had to meet different groups, but he was pretty insistent that everybody be brought along this journey. And so we, we we left no stones unturned when it came to that. But I think also on top of that, communicating clearly in a way that is receptible to your audience was also key, which we also did. Like I said, even going down to speaking, you know, talking about energy transition in every local language, depending on where we were, we had different people who could speak the language there. And we made sure that everybody when just doing a talk show or just just here to take pictures with people and say we've been here, but actually that they understood what we were talking about. So communicating that is key too. Earlier, you mentioned that you're getting funding um, for uh, the projects. So how, could you kind of expand on that a bit? Could you tell us a few um, funding options that Ghana is currently using and what's the role like private companies are, are in, in this whole um, transition? Essentially, there's no silver bullet for funding development in any sector anywhere, right? Ideally, what you want is a blend of finance options. And that's what you expect to see, especially with such complex infrastructure. So some will be donor funded, some might be private financing options. But what I'm actually very excited to see is the the potential for the carbon markets. So, I mean, in the future, we are looking, and not even in the future, we've actually started, Ghana has actually set up a carbon markets registry um, and an office for that under the EPA here in, here in Ghana, here in Accra. But what we're doing is, that, what we're seeing is that we're going to probably have a lot of um, clean energy options being funded by some of the carbon trading um, yields that we get from people offsetting their carbon options with us, which is, I think that's going to be pretty cool and a game changer hmm, that, that's really interesting and it's true like everyone there's no like one option that's needed can you give us like a rough budget like how much funding is needed at this moment or do you think it will be needed oh once I, I can't give you a figure right now but that's actually funny enough that's the, some of the work that i'm doing with sc4 and the government of ghana so we're actually developing an investor ready plan which will be ready hopefully by the end of the year and once that is done, we'll be able to, I'll be able to say, oh, this is the amount that we um, came up with as what is needed to fund Ghana's clean energy solution. But as, as of now, we don't have that figure yet. Oh, okay, no worries. Thank you. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm actually just like very big on the funding aspect, because especially my background from finance as well. So what would right. you say have, have been like some of the hindrances to like getting funding, like what are people like not really keen on when they want to like when they are coming to offer um, funding solutions or they'll be like I can't fund this because of this I don't know do you get I do get you and I I think I touched on that earlier 
But essentially, especially I've noticed where international funding is concerned, they just tend to like, I'll go back to exactly what I said. They overestimate the risk profile of investing in Africa. They are wondering who's going to pay for this when we already pay for things. So they don't have a clear picture of how we finance a lot of things on ground. A lot of things don't even exist on paper. You know what I mean? So it makes it difficult for them to understand how they'll get their money back if they are to invest in this. And that, that that's a hindrance for us. So we are actually also trying to encourage um, some of the philanthropic organizations globally to work with these guys and probably use their funding as patient capital first, prove the concept, and then you can sell it back to them after they, under, they understand clearer how it's worked and then they are, they are more able, able or likely to invest. So things like that, those kind of innovative solutions will be key. Mm, and how long do you think it will take for, like, should I say the investors to get back? the funds they've invested or to get back some form of, um, should I say, I don't say profit, but I guess profit out of it. Oh, I think if I know totally what's invest <laughs> <laughs> I can tell she, she's, she's really contemplating it. But um, if I was to say anything, I would be a liar, to be honest. that's You need to conduct a feasibility study to kind of reveal that, that kind of information. I don't have that at the moment. Okay. All right. That's fine. We'll come and back it, to it. Will, it will depend on each project as well. Hmm. True, true. I'm actually quite curious about um your visits around the country. So I, I mm-hmm. really want to visit Ghana again and I really want to like travel you and should. do all the road trips and and um yeah and I, I think so a question maybe from a personal perspective is when trying to communicate with the different communities and trying to spread the message of the energy transition and how it's gonna impact the people's lives and the decisions that um I guess the government and the, the key decision makers are going to make. How how do you think this message was was received? What are some of your, I guess, personal experiences of of just being in the field and like meeting those people and connecting with them? Can you share like an so, example? Absolutely. And um I think what was helpful for us was not to view energy transition as this lofty academic concept, but really breaking it down into the daily implications of what it means for the fact that the Earth's surface temperature is rising. You know, they understand these things already. No, Nobody, everybody understands what it means for them if you just break it down into simple things, right? So for instance, we spoke to farmers who have realized that, you know, the seasons for which their harvests are occurring are changing and even the regions where they're harvesting certain crops are changing so they know this they can feel this they have this all this indigenous knowledge you just have to you just have to understand what it means for them and communicate it to them at that level and they they gave us some crazy insights like so much knowledge that also went into the framework documents because we didn't just go into there and talk at them we we spoke to them and engaged them and took their feedback and added it so it was it was remarkable, honestly, just to hear some of the things that they had thought about that even our engineers had not thought of as solutions. And you can't because you don't, that's not your daily reality, right? So yeah. it, 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 it was a very eye-opening experience, I must say. And it's probably the highlight of my career so far. Wow, wow. I don't know if you can remember any of those insights that you can share with us. I don't know if it's like a, a while ago now. It has been a while, um, but I do promise yeah. to share some with you offline in one side i go look at my notes <laughs> sure 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 um yeah that's that's amazing bringing the energy transition and, and and climate change close to home 
Um, yeah, that's a really good point because it's bigger than just saying, oh, yes, it's a water temperature is going to increase by 1.5 degrees Celsius or two degrees Celsius if we do nothing. Like that doesn't mean anything to <laughs> to an individual or to a household. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's more like how does the local river and their plants and their source of food and income, exactly. how, how are those things affected? So yeah, man, I, I, I agree with Actually, that. now that you mentioned, I, I think something that um, consistently came up when we're speaking to different communities, which we realized after studying a lot more of the communities or reflecting on our experiences along the journey was that actually the solutions were different in every region, which was quite interesting, right? So obviously based on the different kind of um, flora and fauna, the different kind of industries they have in different parts of the country, what grows there, what kind of um, careers they have in that part of the country, religion, they all had different solutions accordingly. Right. So that's something that we also realized the energy transition is also a localized issue. As much as it's a global issue, it's a very local issue too. Making it locally relevant was also important. So in their solutions that they gave us, we didn't make it a blanket um, recommendation, right? Some We are working with the local assemblies at the time as well. So whatever solutions that they would come up with, we would also have them implement locally, not necessarily across the country, so that it makes sense to the people who are in, within that catchment area. So that was actually a key finding for me. Amazing. I've never actually combined religion and energy transition before. So yeah. that might be another episode that we need to like explore. Um, but yeah, that's that's really insightful. And um, I guess following on from that question would be, what do you think are some of the key technologies that could play a role in Ghana's energy transition? So I know you've mentioned you hinted there at nuclear, you know, that would be really mm-hmm. exciting given that South Africa is the only country that has a an active nuclear power plant. Um, mm-hmm. So, and you also mentioned uh, hydro, you know, Ghana being like one of the the, the big players when it comes to hydro technology. Um, mm-hmm. But what other technologies do you think uh, could play a role and how do you think we could, or Ghana could implement those technologies, like maybe some of the use cases that, that, that are in place? So, yeah, again, I'm not somebody for silver bullets. I just like to look at a range of options. So the, I would say the usual ones that we usually hear about, the kind of high-tech ones like carbon sequestration, etc., probably attaching um, carbon sequestration options onto existing thermal plants or power plants. That's something that could, could be cool and could be useful. Um, but of course, those are also more expensive options. But we can also look at options like more nature-based solutions, such as tree planting and forestry. And I think they are all necessary pieces of a wider puzzle, right? So it's not saying, oh my God, carbon sequestration is the way forward. Let's just carbon sequestration machine every at every perimeter in Ghana. No, it's not about that. Like I said, in different parts of the country, there'll be different needs. Um, there are different things that we can also afford at different stages. So just making sure that we have a nice blend of technology solutions and also nature-based solutions too. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's no silver bullets to this um, to the energy transition anywhere in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the combination of these technologies that make them um, exciting and the use cases. And um, I guess speaking of use cases, how... Um, okay, so let's think about it from like an industrialization perspective not just like powering households let's think about powering industries 
Um, what what kind of technologies do you think there? So you can give us a range or maybe you've seen um, already in place. What kind of technologies do you think are currently used to power um, industries, uh, especially for like economic developments? Like how do we, how do we, you know, we have the solar home systems, for example, that power households, but let's think about it from an industrialization perspective. Um, what kind of energy mix or what kind of um, energy technologies do you think um, will be crucial in in helping power industries in Ghana? I mean, so there's some LNG coming on stream, which looks interesting. Um, that's probably going to play a key role in localized industrial power solutions. But also people are doing the simple stuff, the ones we already know. So solar PVs, people are setting up solar PV, PV farms to, 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 to power their plants. I, I know some companies that have done that, you know, by themselves, actually. So just to even cut down their, their, their electricity costs and their production costs and their overheads and love that. So again, no single technology, but a blend of different options. In re- relating to that, actually, there's some cases whereby, let's say there's people that set it up and then there are imp- people in charge of like maintenance and things like that. And then it's come to my notice recently that um a few of the people in charge of maintenance don't even know how to really um should i say maintain it if that's the right word to use so uh-huh. what would you so what's your advice to like solve this kind of problem that is currently going on i mean i'm I'm not an engineer so if you take my advice well for you if it doesn't work but to be honest um that's something that you should think about when you're setting up a solution like this right you don't just put up technology and leave it and it's not just even about solar pvs it's it's in any sector like i know for instance in in the development world there's this issue of where where water access even like is concerned people setting up boreholes in different communities and just leaving it and going and then the people don't know how to operate it afterwards and then it's useless but you've 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 achieved your kpi right you you've put a, a borehole here and you're gone but if you're actually looking for impact, you need to make sure that whilst you're setting these things up, you're also training people in the local communities on how they can manage them by themselves when you when you leave. And that not only just helps it to be more sustainable, but also allows them to, for some probably some kind of livelihood. Um, they can be paid by the local assembly to to do this and, and et cetera, you know. So I think that's key. But also I found, I've come across some technology recently, which is like self-cleaning solar which was also designed specifically to address this kind of thing, whereby there are street lights that are made of, uh, you know, with solar PVs, but they are self-cleaning. So you don't actually, once you leave them there, they take care of themselves at least for a longer period of time. So those kind of innovative solutions also exist, but I think they must go hand in hand. And then what would you say you're most excited about for the future of energy industry in Ghana? Uh, I've mentioned this earlier, but I think the proliferation of, the carbon market industry in Ghana is looking really, really exciting to me. Um, we've, we've set up the registry. We have some partnerships already with the Swiss government and Ghana looking at this. Um, I think it's it's going to open a Pandora's box of, of possibilities that we just have never prepared for, which is exciting. But also something that I'm quite excited about is the clean cooking space in Ghana. So, I mean... Ghana is known globally now. We're making like strides in this area. Our second lady is actually a global clean cooking ambassador for the Clean Cooking Alliance in DC. 
Um, she goes around telling people about all the great things that we're doing here. But I think it's one of the areas that politically we've really prioritized and we are seeing, we are seeing results for that. So I'm excited about what that means for the future as well. Uh, final question before we ask our usual bonus question, um, which is um, what, are the, what are some of the lessons that you've learned that you think would be useful for some of our listeners? Um, after my time at the ministry, I realized that Ghana and actually so many other African countries have done like a relatively great job in the sense that we have some pretty impressive policy, first of all, and also infrastructure. I think that we don't give ourselves enough credit because of the usual narratives. And of course, the fact that we are usually comparing apples and oranges, i.e. developing countries and undeveloped ones. We still have a long way to go, but it's I think it's still commendable given the kind of constraints we face, the kind of infrastructure that we have out. At least I can speak for my country. Again, after having traversed this country, um, to not only to speak to people, but also we have we've had you know times where we go and inspect some of the infrastructure in very rural parts of Ghana, and I'm shocked at what is there, you know. So yeah, I I, I congratulate all past leadership of this country for all the efforts that they've made for us to reach this point. And while we we are striving to achieve more, I do say, dare I say, we've done a great job so far with what we have. So. And I agree on that, honestly, with some of our other speakers, when we hear what's going on, it's really, really impressive. And we should actually celebrate ourselves more. So yeah. now down to the bonus questions as we find it, we're coming to an end now. If you were to travel anywhere in Africa on an all-expense-paid trip, where would it be and why? Wow. Um, hmm. Do I see the usual ones that everybody wants to do, the Mauritius and no, all of that? No, 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 no. You have to say the one you want. <laughs> Maybe that is the one I want. But um, <laughs> all-expense-Africa, maybe I would do a few. But definitely it would include like Namibia. I've always been intrigued by that country. I think Namibia, like if I could go on a, I don't know, crazy desert safari, I would probably do it in Namibia. Yeah, I think Namibia is quite cool and un, unre, uh, unrated. <laughs> so yeah. Mainly because of the desert safari? Is there another reason? No, honestly, like that's what I've seen. Like Dune dune excursions going on the train from i think i think there's one that goes from namibia through a neighboring i can't remember but yeah i would probably do one of those southern africa corridor expeditions do some safari here do some desert stuff here you know right up to kenya and tanzania yeah something along those lines so multi-country for sure i can't just pick one basically Exactly. The, the same way, the same way I don't believe in silver bullets or one solution. I also don't believe in just one country. I would like to visit <laughs> all of them. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't heard of um this what you explained that's going on with Namibia before. So I think I'll definitely add them on my look it up. Well. Yeah. Look it up. It looks pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, Namibia is the first we've heard on the podcast. So um 
Yeah. I'm glad that's for once. I'm up for something. <laughs> something different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But honestly, uh Bradley, thank you for um speaking to us today about the energy transition in in Ghana. Um it's been a pleasure like hearing about your experience and um some of the exciting work that you've done and you're currently doing. I guess um, from an ABS perspective, we'll be watching out and looking and following some of the the uh the things that you're you're working on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both as well, Polaji and Hassan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you guys. Um it's always nice to reflect on the things that you're working on as well. So thanks for giving me the opportunity and I promise I might even feature back again if you have me once there's let's any development with my work as well. So thank you. Maybe when you become minister yourself, let's do it. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> hold, hold hold on right there. Yeah. <laughs> never say never. Yeah. Never say never indeed. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, you both. All right. Bye. Bye.